Hello to everyone uh, listening into the Whom uh, for the week that was New Zealand over the horizon. Uh, I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka, and we have uh, Peter Bale. If you if you're not re a regular attendee, Peter Bale. A, I was going to say an old colleague, but you're not old. You're certainly a colleague. No, I'm definitely not old. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm so not old. That's right. From my days uh, with Reuters and FT Market Watch back in London. And um, what we do with these uh, hoons, and remember, hoon is the plural of kaka, so lots of birds together chattering away. Uh, is we just go through the week's events here and overseas, particularly overseas because Peter produces a, an excellent um, uh, uh, summary bulletin email for the spin-off on the really interesting events of the world mm. and adds in some great links to um, deep reads on these events. And um, I always find it fascinating your uh, weekly email, Peter. It's great. Well, that's kind please, of please, I find yours. I find your daily bulletin on the Kaka quite fascinating yeah, as well. well it's been a big, big old week. <laughs> Shall we start off outside, out in the rest of the world? What are the big events that maybe New Zealanders haven't heard about that they should? Well, I'm sure they've heard a little bit about it, about it but I, the, the one I find kind of depressing at the moment is uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan. And uh, there's a there's there's quite in fact I can possibly post them onto the onto the Kaka later but the you know we're seeing the most extraordinary advance of the Taliban you know and we just let's remember these these are a bunch of medieval fanatics who want to take you know Afghanistan Afghanistan back to the 15th century uh, if not if not a little earlier and we've been here before uh, what's one of the interesting aspects of this is the speed. Uh, with which they're taking over the speed with which they're dominating some of the uh, taking over some of the regional capitals, including Kandahar. It must be profoundly depressing if you've lost a uh, a, a mem member of the family or you've served in, you know, the British were in Helmand province. The Americans have served all over. New Zealanders, of course, have have served there, and it's now going straight back into the hands of the Taliban. And it looks like it may even happen in a matter of weeks. Um, one of the interesting sort of strategic aspects of this is that they now control the border into Pakistan. They now control the border into Iran, uh, and increasingly they are um, being very successful in the northern area of uh, Afghanistan. Part of which sticks into quite substantially to China. Uh, and you've got Tajikistan and Uzbekistan up there, you know, the stands. And those that those, those northern areas were um, historically uh, run by warlords. The, you know, the, the, there was a guy uh, murdered by murdered by Al Qaeda um, up there. You know, the the um, they were the sort of strongholds, and because of the access and the proximity to Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, they were often used for. Uh, bringing material down to you know to the to the benefit of the of the occupying forces the western occupying forces and the fact that the taliban is now so much in control of the north makes this quite different from last time and it means it's going to be very difficult to do what i suspect the americans may still try to do which is um continue to interfere in afghanistan through through the um through the lens of these uh, of warlords I, I was really struck listening on the BBC this morning to a woman who's the, who's a former Pakistani ambassador, and I don't think I've heard somebody lie quite so comprehensively on the radio uh, <laughs> since. And again, I'll try and possibly find it and put it up because 
she was essentially saying, poor old Pakistan is the, you know, the worst sufferer of uh, terrorism in the region, of course, and has only interest in, in uh, Afghanistan peace. And of course, this is absolute bollocks. And um, I, I heard a very good expression about Pakistan recently, that it's an army with a country attached to it. Yeah. And, you know, it really, this is, this is uh, Pakistan right from day one has, of the invasion, has undermined uh the you know the western efforts in in afghanistan has promoted the interests of the taliban has shielded the taliban shielded of course osama bin laden himself in uh abadabad uh, and then was quite irritated when the americans went in and killed him there so you know the, this idea that pakistan is some sort of innocent party in this is is not the case so i i think we are heading to a um I mean, people will be familiar, particularly those of those of us who are old enough to remember, and I'm only just old enough to remember, the U.S. withdrawal from Saigon uh, in, in yeah. at the end of the Vietnam War, which was very chaotic. The scenes of helicopters uh, landing landing on the roof or hovering above the roof of the U.S. embassy. We're, we're going to see things like that. It's very mm -hmm. interesting. Today, the um, Americans have, have I think, uh, sent or, or said they're about to send in the next 24 hours um, Marines and soldiers into Afghanistan, into Kabul to get people out. Mm -hmm. uh, and the British are doing the same. So it's, you know, the British embassy has now been closed in Kabul and most of its staff have moved out. And there are, you know, many hundreds of thousands now uh, Afghani refugees who are going to, you know, go into Iran and Pakistan and Tajikistan. And so we'll have another refugee cycle. Yeah. It's, a, it's a pretty depressing saga, really, of our 20-year engagement in Afghanistan. Yeah, and New Zealand's going to have to make some uh, tough decisions too because we've got dozens of translators and drivers mm. who are rightly asking um, us to help them out because they'll be first in line. Yeah, and morally, you really have to. Morally, you really have to say that 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 is an extraordinary sort of moral commitment, and and people have hedged around it in a way that I find deeply, deeply reprehensible. Um, there was also a very good piece in the Guardian the other day about a uh, a, a female, a woman um, journalist, uh, Afghani journalist, who is essentially having to live undercover, um, hoping that she won't be found out as 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 a journalist um, by the Taliban. You know, it is there. Yeah. It's also going to be, I suspect, very, very difficult to report because, you know, the Taliban is not terribly keen on having Western journalists with it. So there may well be Pakistani journalists there. You know, I think that a, a Reuters phot uh, photographer was killed recently oh, yeah. um, on the Pakistan border uh, in, in Afghanistan while while covering a Taliban advance. Um, it's going to be very, very difficult to have reporters in there telling us what's really going on. So there'll be you know lots of lots of um reporting on it from across the border in iran and tajikistan and so on and, and it's going to be quite difficult i think for us to see what's going on there i'm curious about whether the chinese will try to get involved you know basically afghanistan is a sort of a a, a proxy for everyone taking on each other so the the russians went in the americans have gone in last century the britons went in it was mm. the place for the what was it, the Great Game or whatever it is? Well, it was certainly one of the places where the Great Game, great game was carried out. Yep. And, and there's a very good William Dalrymple book about mm -hmm. this um, and, and about this the saga of the, of the British effectively being destroyed in, in, in Afghanistan. It is, it is the place that empires go to die. I, I suspect that China will engage there, perhaps in a proxy fashion with Pakistan. As you know, Pakistan oh, is yeah. very, very important on the Belt and Road initiative there's an yeah. enormous new port being built by the chinese with the pakistanis on the uh on the arabian sea so i have a feeling that china will one way or another have access to this and 
as I say, it's got this finger that sticks out into into Chinese territory, which is a very sort of risky area. And there are lots of Uyghurs um, connected to the Taliban as well. So, you know, there's there's a there's a bunch of reasons why um, why China would would participate in it or, you know, be, be interested in it. Bernard, have you have I lost you, Bernard? Also struggling. Um, tell us what's going on in Africa. Yeah, it's a very I, I, one of the reasons. What I, one of the things that I try to do with this the spin-off piece is not just the stories that are actually big at the moment necessarily in the world, because you know we do get good coverage of those on on. But it's also to sort of shine a light on places that we don't hear about terribly often, and one of those is Mali. Um, you know, very large former colony in Central Africa. Um, I, I noted that 51 civilians were killed by Islamic uh, insurgents um, on motorcycles in northern Mali. Um, and this is just sort of happening. It's, it's, it's happening in Niger. It's happening in Chad. And it's all, you know, they can just disappear and ebb and flow, particularly into the kind of human trafficking and very ancient travel routes um, uh, uh, into the Sahara through. And it's, the, the region is known as the Sahel, which is essentially the, the region abutting the Sahara. And um it's going to become or is a, an extremely interesting strategic area you know the french have been in and out of mali and chad from a military perspective uh and in, a, in an earlier um bulletin i mentioned that um a um a russian organization called the wagner group uh w-a-g-n-e-r which mm. is famous for providing the little green putin's little green men who went into uh, Eastern Ukraine and uh, Crimea. They've they've been they're in the Central African Republic. Oddly, two journalists who went to report on them were killed, which is no coincidence, mm -hmm. I, I I think. Um, and uh, the BBC this week came across a cache of information, which shows that the Wagner Group is heavily active in Libya, where you've got effectively a civil a civil war running right. since since the um, you know since the death of Gaddafi. And interestingly, it appears as though Russia is favouring Saif uh, al-Islam, uh, Gaddafi's son, as a potential new uh, right. leader in in um, Libya. So all this kind of ties together. It's all, it is almost as though there were a kind of 19th century great game being played out. Um, and it'd be interesting to think if we are getting, I mean, we've obviously seen it in Syria, those kind of proxy wars that we had um, during the Cold War, where Russia would, you know, like Russia in Russia and Cuba in Angola versus an American-supported opposition, you know, those kinds of conflicts, which um, we may have one, one, you know, and uh, they may be at arm's length, but they're still bloody and they destabilize, you know, remarkable and extraordinary places. Particularly in this age of uh, climate change, on Monday night we got this. Um extremely detailed and um, sobering report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the preparation for world leaders ahead of the Glasgow Climate mm. Summit, which again warned that essentially we've pumped as much carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere that we can to get away with 1.5 degrees, which is seen as the maximum really before climate change becomes a bit of a runaway train mm. that we've will struggle to control with uh, tipping points and feedback loops that uh, risk uh, with the very worst scenario painted in the report arise well above five degrees above the pre-industrial levels which would be pretty much unlivable 
And remember, with the uh, climate change impact in Africa, um, destabilizing yep. those economies on top of the wars, you know, it's no accident those things go together. And one of the reasons why I think Europe in particular is so nervous about what's going on in Africa. Yeah, and of course, have... we're already, I mean, these are already climate driven yeah. crises to some extent. You've got the, the, the people in Djibouti and um, uh, and Yemen. I mean, the, the extraordinary travel of people from, you know, which, of course, Yemen is, a, is, is at war with Saudi Arabia, or the, the Saudi Arabia is trying to um, com, combat the Yemeni forces. But the idea that Yemen, Yemeni people end up crossing back across the Red Sea and ending up in Libya trying to get into trying to get into Europe, you know, these are all, as you say, they're going to get much worse with climate related crisis as well. That's right. Uh, you pointed out a really interesting story out of China um, this this week. Uh, we tend to forget that China is a Stalinist, <laughs> Leninist yep. state, yep. and occasionally pots out these five-year plans, mm. which we should take notice of. Well, I'm a big fan of five-year plans because I, I, yes. I, I have a problem with um, having a slightly unhealthy level of interest in Stalin. And of course, one of Stalin's great posters and phrases was the five-year plan, we'll do it in three, um, <laughs> which is the kind of ridiculous thing you get in companies when they say, we're going to do something, and you say, let's, uh, do, let's do it in half that time. Yeah, right. yeah the, the Chinese thing is, is, is interesting on several levels. I mean, we've talked a little bit, Bernard, um, and I would like to come back to climate as well in a minute, yeah. actually, but mm. the, we've talked quite a bit about the crackdown on the big tech companies and mm. on the big tech leaders. The, it's, it seems to be particularly related to those with big listings in the United States. Uh, and also those that have raised capital overseas and any signal that these business leaders such as Jack Ma, uh, any signal that they, they they sort of believe that they have some political weight as well, yeah. they get cut off at the knees. And it's very interesting that I think China is going to pay a price for this as well, because these are enormous, successful, healthy capitalist companies, including uh, ByteDance, which owns TikTok, uh, and which uh, has now said it's going to going to try and list in Hong Kong, I think, which it'll be very interesting to see if the, the Chinese Communist Party allows that to happen. But th there was a, a five-year economic plan announced this week, um, which is very much around um, str strategic sectors, technology, healthcare, uh, and it's very much about the, the, the Communist Party making sure that uh, everybody realises that it is in charge. One of the interesting things that has happened to Bernard, uh, and you've probably seen a lot about this, we can talk about this a bit more, is, uh, you know, the United States has suspended a lot of um, uh, high-tech transfers to China, particularly around the manufacture of semiconductors. Mm -hmm. Uh, and China has a you know a huge semiconductor industry, but it cannot make a particular couple of particular categories of super high-end semiconductors, which are in which Taiwan, uh, which uh, may or may not be quite close to close to China, and some <laughs> part of China, as some people would say, um, you know, the, the it's very interesting to see China making um, very rapid moves towards making. Uh, more sophist more and more sophisticated technology, which I think is going to be going to show that this U.S. isolation period is uh, going to backfire. Yeah, uh, and that push for the most sophisticated type of semiconductors and also the machines that make them. Mm. Um, there's one uh, company in Holland, or the Netherlands, which uh, it's called ASML, mm. which um, is one of those jewels in the crown of you know Western capitalism. 
that the Chinese would like to get their hands on. Uh, and it just reinforces this continuing drift towards a bifurcated world of America, yes. Europe, and and China. That sounds and like a trifurcated world, though. Trifurcated, yeah. yeah. Although I sort of, I think the Europeans and the Americans won't go down the um, full-on, you know, strategic competition route. Although there'll be lots of niggles. No. And, well, uh, yeah, I just, I just think this is this is wrong-headed by the Americans, I must say. And I, and I just, I cannot, I, I, I just think engagement has to be a much more effective. I mean, it's a difficult, it's very difficult to engage. With the Chinese Communist Party and to and to engage, but to, to not engage with China, I think is an extraordinary, an extraordinary and dangerous mistake. Yeah, and the and the Australians are still rattling their sabers. Uh, this week we got a report from the Lowy Institute, pointing out that China now has a military that's able to project its power beyond um, Southeast Asia into Australia with mm. uh, long term, long range missiles, um, submarines, and the odd aircraft carrier here and there which uh, the Australians get really nervous about. And we're hearing again <coughs> discussions about whether Australia needs to build its own nuclear deterrent. Which, oh, yeah. Uh, well, that would be good. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. Yeah, SCOMO. Imagine SCOMO with nukes. Um, oh, no. I mean, what Australia does have, actually, and I, think, I often think about this with you, uh, when, with you when you call this po podcast Over the Horizon. Um, mm. when, we were, when we were baby reporters there, Bernard, they developed a thing called the Jinder Lee Over the Horizon Radar. Oh, that's right, yeah. Which was, uh, I, I, know, I need to sort of look up and see what it, it, it was very, very advanced at the time and allowed them to particularly, of course, it was focused on Indonesia and um, the kind of uh, fear of Indonesia's and, the, and a sort of, you know, yellow peril kind of uh, principle. But, you know, it does allow them or did allow them in those days to um, see, see aircraft and so on as far away as Singapore. So it's a very interesting idea what Australia is, um, has has been able to do in defense in defensive terms, but of course you know they're reliant on the United States ultimately. Yeah, um, there was that time they had those F one elevens. I don't know if Which anyone they, went to a to well, a. They, dro they dropped one and they dropped one in the White Matar once. That's Remember right. That? <laughs> yeah, 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 and they often used to turn up at air shows in New Zealand. These mm. big flying pigs, <laughs> which were very. Um, uh, troublesome in their early years, but were particularly good because they were able to hug the sea or the land and fly under people's radars at very long distances and deliver large bombs, basically, and were the only long-range strike forces, strike force at that point, apart from America, in that part of the world. They don't have them anymore, but um, the Australians have been trying to get hold of uh, submarines, which they can use to project the, their force. Um, and, you know, it's not, not great when you hear the, the Australians talk about this sort of stuff. Um, and it reminded me, actually, of we were in the Second World War. I, I did a little, I fell down a hole. You know how you're on the internet and... I have someone, no idea what you're talking about, Carol. <laughs> and someone was talking, oh, that's right, Winston Churchill. Oh, uh, there's been a little Christ. kerfuffle in Parliament about a... <laughs> portrait of Winston Churchill, which was on the wall opposite the Greens office in Parliament. And the Greens didn't love the old codger and got rid of him. And well, did they Judith get rid Collins, of him or did they just move it within the parlementary estate? And they're putting, they in, putting, in, a, putting in a piece of a piece of work by a modern Tangata Whenua artist. That seems That's perfectly right. logical. And Absolutely. I was also thinking today, so I am not an anti-Churchill thing, but, you know, let's just remember Gallipoli, who planned the Gallipoli. Absolutely. Who planned Gallipoli. 
you know, yes. let's let's not just he is, of course, you know, an extraordinary World War II hero, although I rather liked Judith Collins uh, rather wrong headed remark, of course, because of my thing about Stalin, that who are we going to replace him with Stalin? Stalin you know, when yeah. when when the Soviet Union lost 26 million people exactly. uh, fighting the um, fighting Hitler. So I think actually a picture of um, Stalin uh, in um, in Parliament would go down quite well, actually. So yes. I'll, I'll send her some images that I've got. But uh, yeah, I thought that was one of the more ludicrous um, <sighs> stories of the week. And it's very interesting Bernard, watching what National is doing, that I, I don't think that they are. I think they are tapping into a certain uh, body of body of thinking in New Zealand, but they're doing it in such a sort of blindingly obvious way. The whole Aotearoa controversy. I mean, there is, it seems to me, a body of people, mostly white, who are nervous about the level of change that they're experiencing or seeing or perceiving. I think the government did make a huge mistake with the Hey Pua Pua report in not getting out ahead of it, ahead of it and explaining what was going on. But the, the Nationals just so ham-fisted about this. And what's, what I also actually, I admit to actually rather liking this about Judith Collins, is that she absolutely cannot hide who she really is. No, it's just, right. just it takes seconds and and the kind of and and she just goes for it. It's fantastic. Yeah. That's know? one of the beauties of Twitter. I mean, that's why Twitter I thought was the perfect and the most awful platform for Trump. Mm. Because you saw the mess his brain was by just following his Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Feed. Yep. And it really was who he was. And but, but at the same time, of course, he was using it for all sorts of you know, awfulness. Yeah. And uh, Judith has, she's had various periods on and off Twitter, but she's on at the moment. <laughs> and it's um, a thing to behold. She even responded to one of my comments about uh, about Churchill. Uh, the reason I started off on the segue mm. uh, is that uh, there was a question about Churchill and, you know, um, whether he was good or bad for, from a New Zealand point of view. My, I'm, <clears throat> I think his reputation from a New Zealand point of view is mixed, i.e. the Gallipoli thing. Yeah. It's not good. Secondly, uh, he was a rampant imperialist, and um, he did also divert shipfuls of wheat from Bengal in mm -hmm. um, 1943, mm. which led to the deaths of millions. To the Indian Mutant. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And, and secondly, there was this really interesting episode, which I don't think a lot of New Zealanders understand, in early 1942. So remember, this is after mm -hmm. uh, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, is racing down through Malaysia and is this, Are you turning this into a history podcast, Bernard? Sorry, very, very briefly. Mm, very go briefly. ahead. <laughs> um, and so early 1942, the Australians are understandably freaked. You know, they've just had Darwin bombed. Um, it looks like Japan's about to invade Australia. Uh, and and so the Australians have an army in the Middle East defending mm. Britain's interests in the Suez Canal. And so the Australians, under uh, John Curtin, who was a Labour uh, Prime Minister, said, right, we're bringing back the Australian troops to defend Australia. Uh, they were on a ship on their way to Australia, and Churchill intervened to try and send the ship with the Australian troops to Burma mm. to defend uh Britain's interests in Southeast Asia. Or, and or all of our interests, Bernard. All I'm of sure our interests. You know, the I mean, the great all empire. Good, healthy yeah. imperials. Then, yeah. yeah, so the really, one of the really interesting moments of, uh, of, of pivot, of a really big change in, a, in our part of the world, was uh, John Curtin, the Australian Prime Minister, ranted in a telegraph to Churchill mm, mm. saying... Telegram. Telegram, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> telegram to Churchill saying... 
bugger off, mate. They're our troops. They're coming back to Australia. And he ordered the ship to mm. not go to Burma as Churchill wanted, come back to Australia. What a great story. Yeah. What a great story. And, and of course, the, the other thing about, sorry, carry on. Sorry. And you're, at that you're very in full same, flow here. I know. And at that very same moment, New Zealand was also a tad nervous about being invaded and suggested very gently to Churchill that they'd like their troops back from the Middle East. And Churchill says, no way, mate, they're, they're empire troops. And New Zealand said, oh, okay, yeah, they are. Fair mm. enough. Mm. <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't complain. The Aussies were really uh, um, absolutely rampant and aggressive about it and got their way. Mm. We, we acquiesced. It's a classic sort of, you know, um, the difference between Australia and New Zealand. Australia said, F you to Churchill in the middle of the Second World War, and we went, oh, okay, then we'll defend the empire. Well, another way that I often see Churchill, and I'm, you know, I'm not anti-Churchill, although it was, it was extremely funny listening to Radio New Zealand last night and hearing Winston Peters witter on about this as well. Oh, really? Uh, you know, that it was a, you know, he, he basically made it all about him, which is very much a Winston thing. But if you go to the cabinet war rooms uh, under, under, under the Treasury Building in London, um, one of the one of the artifacts that's absolutely fabulous is um, Churchill's velvet jumpsuit that he used to wear mm -hmm. when he went to sleep and stayed in the in the cabinet cabinet war room. So he must have looked like a little purple um, teddy bear drinking champagne and smoking. Were you a able cigar. to touch it? Did no, I wasn't was able to touch it. But I did. I did think <laughs> it would it? be. I did think it would be like something you know quite fun to. It's sort of like an Udi, you know, that he was. Oh, yeah. He was. Uh, he would he would wear and wander around in his little little purple jumpsuit. Um, but it's somebody. It is a I, fascinating time. I mean, all those biographies time. of Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt. You know, just well, actually. So while we're on books, then yes, let's just let me let me because uh, I'm apart from my Stalin uh, obsession. Um, this is an excellent excellent book, ah. uh, relatively recently out by the Canadian ah. historian uh, Margaret Mitchell, Margaret Macmillan, and one of the things that's interesting it's it's an it's an analysis of war, the whole concept of war, and how conflict shaped uh, modern times and historic times. One of the interesting things about it is that she, being a woman historian, there's, or at least I'm ascribing this uh, to her being to, to part of the fact that she's a woman and Canadian, is it has it doesn't have the kind of rah rah that you sometimes mm. get from uh, Max Hastings or other historians. It's extremely sober, beautifully written, um, and it's worth listening. So it's, it's called War, How Conflict Shaped Us by Margaret Macmillan. It's also the, she did the, the BBC each year has a kind of noted historian or noted figure do their wreath lectures, which are five or six hour long, absolutely beautifully delivered Wonderful. lectures. Yeah. And she did them in, I think, 2018. And I put a link in, in, in the spinoff, but I can drop a link into here. It, it's uh, If you do a search for Margaret uh, Macmillan Reith lectures, they're well worth listening to for a perspective on how war does shape uh, modern life and, and has and, and has for many years and how it seems also to be inherent. Um, and it's a good antidote in a way to the Stephen Pinker theory, uh, another Canadian um, intellectual, that we are less violent than we used to be. Um, which is an interesting theory, but uh, not necessarily um, not necessarily the case. What, let me let me use that segue, Bernard, to do a sort of reverse three sixty segue one hundred and eighty, um, which will leave me dizzy at the end. There's a handbrake is, going on somewhere. Yep, yep. <laughs> there's a handbrake going, which is to go back just for a minute to the to the IPCC report. Now, yeah. I am absolutely not a uh, climate change denier. I have actually also gotten trouble at times. 
journalistically with things that I've done where people who are climate change deniers have accused me of being a lefty by by uh, recognizing the quality of the work of the IPCC mm. and saying you know very often that it is the best evidence we have or the best mm. information we have and I think as with COVID we can only be led by the science mm. there's a guy in Denmark Bjorn Lomberg who has a mm. reputation as being a climate a climate change denier. He isn't actually. He mm. said believes though that uh, the drama is overstated. The angst is overstated. He pointed out in a recent piece that um, while these bushfires may be bush, you know, the fires we're seeing all around the world may in fact be, um, you know, extraordinarily destructive and so on. That there's less burning than there has been, you know, throughout history. Uh, and he also argues that, you know, there will be benefits from warming as well. He does perfectly acknowledge that it is happening, but he believes that some of the, uh, particularly in the media, that it is a little bit um, or a, a lot overhyped and that we're not fully aware enough of the of the underlying science. Now, I'm not absolutely certain that I um, that I go for his view, uh, which is in somewhat contrast to the to the IPCC, but there are other voices out there that are not necessarily in the kind of fossil fuel um, deniers. Oh, I'm sorry. Mike says Lomberg is a complete fake. Well, you may well be, you may well be right. And I, well, actually, I don't think he's a complete fake, but he has, he has some of his, um, some of his data points have been questioned. You're absolutely right. But his, his, I, I just want to be clear that based on what I've read from of him over the years, the economist used to run quite a bit of his stuff. Um, he's not so much a denier as a, uh, as concerned about the extent to which we fear this. Mm. And also, I think there's a there's an aspect of this burn, which I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on, particularly as far as New Zealand goes, which is the extent to which uh, there's an adaptation um, that's necessary, that, that, you know, even at one and a half degrees, if, if Glasgow manages to um, recommit to that goal, which I, I'm, it may recommit to it, but I, everything I've read this week suggests to me that, that, one and a half degrees is, is now not entirely possible. What is the adaptation as well as the mitigation? So we can we can go to net zero, try to go to net zero, but what's New Zealand going to do about adaptation and the costs of adaptation? Yeah. I I can see why adaptation is a tempting way to frame the um, debate. And unfortunately, it's used by those who want to do nothing as the way to yeah. avoid having to take some of the pain of doing nothing. My my pushback on the Lomberg, uh, Lomborg um, argument is increasingly, as the climate warms, we seem to be getting these trigger points and increasing feedback loops, which means that things accelerate. You could sort of accept the Lomberg line if we had a steady increase in uh, warmth, which uh did create more major climate events but wasn't in any way sort of accelerating or careering out of control mm. and that's the danger that as you get higher that's and right. higher the caps melt the ice caps start melting the methane starts bubbling up from the siberian wasteland and you know as you talked about last week the gulf stream <laughs> changes direction mm. and and we start to get this you know roll on and i must say also and this is my separate view that a massive and um, the way that the IPCC described it this week was we need an immediate large scale and meaningful response. I actually think that a 
true response to climate change is a way to respond to the awful um, direction, for the want of a better word, capitalism is is trending towards wider inequality and captured democracies that uh, are there essentially to um, uh, enrich those who have the best access. And uh, I think the last 10 years of quantitative easing have done that in spades yeah. without question. I'm very concerned about this this twist to socialism again late, late in our podcast, Bernard. I Actually, mean, I no, I'm a huge fan of capitalism <laughs> with the right fetters. Yeah. yeah. So what do, you th what do you think about the New Zealand policy response on, I mean, Mark Dalder, our, our former colleague at Newsroom, and I think one of, the, one of the most intelligent writers about this anywhere in the country, points out that, you know, New Zealand really isn't meeting uh, any of the goals that it has, that it has oh, yeah. set. Yeah. You know, what, what's, what, what's going on there? I mean, is it just another point of failure by this government or is it too difficult to handle? So we, uh, yeah. Now I wrote a piece um, for the spin-off in tandem with a, a podcast that has gone out today, looking at what I call the political economy mm, of mm. the climate change situation here. The government, this government, and the last government have done virtually nothing to um, uh, reduce climate emissions in any meaningful way, other than pass some legislation and and declare some emergencies. Um, so bits of paper, really. Uh, the real work needs to be done of subsidizing a just transition to a low carbon society that means as we've seen with these first little um, tippy toe steps of the government into uh, making it more expensive to own a big uh, juicy double cab ute and making it slightly cheaper to to own a electric car mm. that um, the politically controversial and politically difficult issues of increasing subsidies for low carbon um, transport and housing are, are beyond this government. So first, the government has lost 10 percentage points of popularity in the last three months, <laughs> at least partly because of this thing called now called the Ute tax by Judith Collins, which is a, re a fiscally neutral. That's the other thing. The government is not contributing any taxpayers money to the scheme. Fiscally neutral scheme where double cab Ute buyers uh, effectively subsidised slightly cheaper electric cars, mm. Mm. which Treasury and MFE, by my reckoning, believe won't have won't make much difference mm. to carbon mm. emissions. If the government was deadly serious about really reducing emissions, a it would uh, very quickly look to reconfigure our roads and motorways for cycling yes. and pedestrianism, um, significantly subsidise uh, electric cars, particularly electric bikes, and go on a mass rebuilding scheme for New Zealand's houses. We need one and a half million new warm warm and um, energy efficient homes mm -hmm. that are close together, close to transport, all of that stuff. Now that is a massive amount of uh, spending. It would mean higher taxes and it would mean massive disruption for a lot of people and a complete change in lifestyle for a bunch of people. Mm. Those people living in the suburbs, driving their double cab SUV with the boat on the back to the beach, either they're gonna I have to like buy- the sound of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with a backyard, they can mm. still do that, but they should be paying a lot more. And essentially a shift towards a low carbon society, if we do it properly, should be a way to deal with these problems capitalism has developed over the yeah. last 20 years of, of building inequality and worsening the well-being of the poorest what about the what about the idea bernard and I, you know we hear it 
particularly if you listen to talkback, which I try not to do because it rots my brain very quickly. But uh, although one could argue that what we're doing is a form of talkback, and I, I don't mean to play Sean Plunkett here, but um, what about the argument that anything New Zealand does is just too small, it's too irrelevant, um, it's all got to be about China and the United States? Yeah, I can see that argument, but the thing you can fire back with very quickly is if we don't uh, pull our weight, in fact, pulling our weight will mean doing a lot more than what the Climate Change Commission is saying. Mm, mm. Climate Change Commission was told to come up with advice for zero carbon by 2050 and some reduction in methane. It's clear from the IPCC that the various leaders going to Glasgow will have to come up with much bigger contributions to get anywhere near one and a half degrees. Mm. That includes New Zealand. And the problem for us is if we say, hey, guys, it's it's tough for us. We've got a lot of cows. It's a lot of methane. You know, we can't pull our weight completely because because and the rest of the world go is not going to go. Oh, they're there, New Zealand. It's you know, we understand mm. <laughs> they're going to go. Ah, we're taking we will- a lot of pain here. We're going to tax your in, the imports from New Zealand. We'll call it a. Carbon, carbon tax. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So all of our meat and our dairy and it's a very good point about about if, why about another reason to do it. You know, another reason to do the right thing. Just let me ask you, but I, I I have a feeling or I suspect that uh, although not necessarily directly related to that outage this week, the the, the rolling blackout, mm. which seems to have been done incredibly incompetently, uh, that. An issue there is the uh, reluctance to allow further gas exploration. Obviously, that gas to be explored would not have been on stream necessarily. It wouldn't have been on stream yet. But, you know, gas has in many countries, particularly the UK, been an extremely valuable um, interim, theoretically interim step between much worse polluting, uh, much worse fossil fuels such as coal. Um, what do you think happened with that blackout? Because I, I, I thought that the guy from Genesis was um, somewhat disingenuous in blaming Megan Woods um, and, and saying that <laughs> Megan Woods was um, victimising him. But on the other hand, it also doesn't, just the structure of the New Zealand power industry doesn't look terribly rational at the moment. No, exactly right. Um, and I wrote a quite a long piece on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. Do you need an editor? Do you need me to edit your pieces? Oh, no, no, it was... Bit? perfectly yeah, written every word yeah. didn't need an editor what mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway it's there and it's linked into the um invitation to this mm-hmm. essentially our electricity market was set up in 1996 pre all of the talk about climate change as a way to um, remove government control of electricity generation and retailing and investment because the view in 1996 was we had overinvested in <laughs> electricity generation, particularly hydro, mm-hmm. with these big nasty schemes that were destroying the environment and that they were Robert Muldoon personified. And we needed to stop that. We had too much electricity. And in fact, um, so much electricity, we were having to give it away to Rio Tinto and the Bluff smelter. And what we actually needed, because remember in 1996, the view was New Zealand would have a flat population that was aging. We didn't need new generation. We had plenty of generation. We didn't want to, we didn't want more generation. We wanted to make, run this uh, industry more efficiently and to get it out of the nasty hands of big government. And so they did that. But what it meant with the structure of the market, which is, which aims to price the marginal demand in line with the marginal supply. So what you have is a base mm, load mm. of mostly hydro, which is basically 
costless to produce. We don't pay for the water. Uh, that's another issue. At some point, the iwi in those regions will ask for um, uh, some control, at least, and or payment. That aside, um, it means that it's in the interests of the electricity producers, the gen tailors, as we call them, the generators who are also retailers, to restrict their amount of new investment mm. and always be running on the precipice of failure. I yes. have as much generation as you need, but only that much to deal with any increases in demand. And the most efficient way to deal with those little blips at the top of the curve is to have a gas-fired electricity generator, which you can flick on and off yep. with the flick of a switch. You don't have to worry about the wind. You don't have to worry about the lake levels. Just on and off, on and off. And you take wait for the prices to rise at the margins. And of course, all the electricity you generate in that base load gets the same price as what's at the margins. Mm. And so what you end up with is an electricity industry designed to be on the precipice of failure all the time that only builds new generation, which is designed for um, those very peaker prices. Mm -hmm. And so it's most, and in the last 20 years, we have retired uh, 1500 megawatts of thermal. So that is some coal mm -hmm. and some things, mainly because it was old and expensive. And we have replaced it with 2000 megawatts of thermal. Mm. So that's gas, and we actually um, have fired up again the Huntley. Mm. Uh, um, so should station. we should we have you know? Do you think the government should review the um, ban on gas gas exploration and which I is obviously limited ex existing yeah, I, development? I think that get gas and oil ban is a distraction from both sides of the debate. I think um, Labour and the Greens didn't really need to do it. It was a virtue signalling exercise to mm. say, hey, we're serious about this. Actually, no one's discovered any gas in offshore in New Zealand since the year 2000. We're actually still producing a lot of gas. The, one of the problems is it's been gobbled up by methanex, mm. which pro processes it into um, methanol. Like that, it? Yeah, mm -hmm. and then oh, exports for the petrol. It. Right. Yeah, yeah. How and this was one of the think big projects. So we've got enough gas. Most most of the um, forecasters say we've got enough enough gas for another 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the uh, and so it was distracting. It became one of these culture war type issues. Um, so, A, we probably weren't going to find any more gas anyway, uh, and um, all it did was buy a lot of pain for the government. Politically, it wasn't that brilliant. But the real problem is the government itself will not allow the industry to restructure and focus on building new renewable generation. Mm. So one of the most obvious ways to solve this problem is to put as many solar panels on as many roofs. Yes. So that could be industrial, it could be offices, it could be homes, in as many places as possible with the batteries, which are now quite mm -hmm. cheap and accessible, which effectively builds you all these, these little pools of resiliency throughout your system. It means yeah. you don't have to build new lines from big plants at the bottom of the South Island that go all the way up to Auckland. Instead, you just build lots of little power plants on people's houses. Yeah, it's country. very interesting. And I, I even, in, and this is a, I, I'm not sure this principle exists here, but in my house in London, we have um, 
solar cells which uh, feed electricity back into the grid mm. you know so it's a, so yes yes it gets used through the converter in the house but where there's a surplus it gets it gets sold back to the grid at a very very favorable price which was how they delivered the subsidy to to uh you know incredibly struggling middle class people like me but <laughs> I, I don't know whether they do that here but I, I did notice that this week in in California has made it much much easier to do this because the power companies in California uh, had totally opposed the idea of um, yeah. people having having their own little um, solar cells on the roof, but should we should we address some of the questions that have been raised? I mean, including yes. including uh, people talking about uh, double double cab driving to the beach, people um, voting, which is true, of course. Yeah, no, um, that's that's one of the things I addressed in my um, piece for the spinoff and in the podcast is that uh, what we call the Overton window, that mm. area of debate in which the middle of the electorate will think is sensible and which the mainstream parties focus their attention on. At the moment, those median voters are, say they care about climate change, but when push comes to shove, are always saying, well, no, not me, someone else can pay, or yep. not now, someone else in, else in the future. And unfortunately, that's unlikely to change very fast, and that's why Jacinda Ardern has been reluctant to really push it hard. And unlike last year during COVID-19, when she, the government deliberately infringed on people's personal mm. rights and damaged the value of their assets and restricted their freedoms, and everyone agreed to do it, and the reason for that was that she had big air cover from business, from people on the centre-right, both ACT and uh, National called for hard and sharp lockdowns, mm -hmm. and a lot of people in the business community also called for essentially the government to shut down the economy to save the nanas. <coughs> now, accidentally on purpose, that was the right thing to do. Save the what? The nanas? Save the nanas. Oh, so shut down the economy. It, it was a nana-saving strategy. It was a nana-saving strategy. Excellent. And I'm thrilled because my mother, who's a nana, is still rocking on and um we had uh so few deaths and it turned out actually that it wasn't so much an economy versus health issue that the rest of the world framed the covid response yes. as it was economy equals health absolutely so now, so now we have any, a... I'll, I'll put a link out for this Bernard, because there's a wonderful chap i think you follow him too john Byrne murdoch from the uh financial times who has done the most remarkable job of tracking the data um on on COVID and particularly giving the lie to this idea that um, uh, that there's you know that the that that it's the lockdowns that have an economic cost as opposed to the yeah. uh, failure of the lockdowns is, is where the economic cost comes in. I'll just put his little profile here from the FT. It's very yeah. very good. And the FT has made most of his um, or all of his COVID material oh, free. Great. Uh, so it's it, it's not just it's not behind the uh, paywall. Cool. I'll also put it into the um, text version uh, that goes with the recorded. Yeah, it'll be good to it'll be good to make sure get some feedback from the from the people on the um, on the call, please, yeah. as well. If 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 it's useful to have these links dropped in there. Okay, so um, we've got twenty seven attendees, which is through, and including Mike Joy. Hello, Mike. Um, renewable sounds great, but uh, the energy return on investment for much of it is terrible. So this is essentially, as I'm reading it, um, the argument is uh, uh, what we actually need to do is stop consuming so much and that building all these wind farms and solar panels actually consumes a lot of um, materials and emits carbons as well. And therefore, what we actually need to do is start to 
limit our freewheeling, big flying, hard driving uh, consumption lifestyle. And I, I get that actually. That's sort of slightly yeah. Um, but this is the this is the I, I worry about this being a kind of um, council of dis, council of despair and an anti growth agenda. I mean, we 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 may be addicted to growth, but you know, there's a, the, the, the this economy does need to you know keep growing and. Uh, deliver higher living standards, including education and lifestyle, and think to the to to its people. You could argue that we've actually got a total output per year and resources, which are more than enough for everyone. It's just concentrated in the hands of too many people. And one of the issues with the growth <coughs> agenda, uh, going for growth as a way to solve your poverty issues, and certainly it worked for China, is that um, it's a distraction from the need to redistribute income and wealth. Um, it's even more socialism. I'm very concerned about this. Almighty, because what's actually happened in the last thirty years? I'm kidding. Please. The, benef <laughs> the benefits of the economic growth in the West industrialized world, and a big chunk of the developing world as well, the benefits of that growth have accrued into the hands of relatively yes. few people. Yes. And one of the reasons we're in this situation where central banks printed thirteen trillion dollars in the last fifteen months. And more than two thirds of it just simply went round in a circle into another bank account or a central bank bank account because the people who got the money for when they sold their bonds to the central bank yeah. didn't invest it, didn't spend it, have so much money they can't spend it, uh, have such low risk appetites um, that they can't invest it. And so you're not actually solving any problems by doing that. Now, that's quite a big shift for you know, Western economies to take. They're sort of hardwired for growth. The, their whole, the whole third way neoliberal thing is about you can solve all your problems, just get the growth, get the jobs, and it, it, everyone will rise with the tide of the economy, which I think that's, that game is over. Um, I'm, but by the same token, uh, I'll put on a, some pieces by some, some pretty... Um, you know, progressive, left-leaning, I suppose you could call it, economists who also push back at that anti-growth agenda. Mm. And uh, it, it also, particularly for the developing world, that's quite a hard argument to make. Absolutely. We've had all the growth. You you, you can't have it now. Exactly. Yeah, now we'll pull up the ladder and no more growth. And that's, again, yeah. why China is so effective in places like Africa, the whole Belt and Road and so on. Mm. Whether or not it is a death, a, a death trap, a, um, a debt trap, uh, you know, it, China China can um, give the impression of understanding these these uh, struggling economies much more than much more than we do. I mean, it's very amusing to me to see Australia, you know, offering various uh, buildings and harbors and things in the South Pacific when China has been in there a very long time. And it, under late. Yeah. it understands these people in a way that um, I'm just not I'm just not convinced that um, the United States or the or, or Australia or even for that maybe New Zealand does. I mean, I you know we have to. Well, it would be nice to assume that New Zealand is a more effective uh, Pacific partner, for example. I, I'm not sure that that's always the case, but um, maybe that's another great New Zealand myth that we can we yeah. can disable on this show. Yeah, well, not everyone in the South Pacific loves what we've done. Mm. I've got to remember uh, Samoa, um, New Zealand accidentally on purpose introduced um, the flu into Samoa, which killed big chunk of the mm. population in 1919 yeah yeah, yeah i and, follow i follow michael field as well oh yeah good <laughs> and um uh you know um we haven't invested much and we've 
both us and as the Australians have mm. let the Chinese in in a big way by not contributing to the um, growth of infrastructure. And I was in Vanuatu uh, a few years ago uh, when uh, Tony Abbott, the Australian Prime Minister, slashed the foreign mm. foreign aid budget and the Pacific got hurt the hardest. So, yeah, no, it's... Uh, and this is the, the other thing is climate change. You know, um, one of the reasons the Pacific have been quite friendly towards China so far is that China seems to be seriously talking about it and doing things about climate change. We're, and, you know, the some of the first big losers of rising sea levels will be the South, will be mm. the, um, South Pacific. So that's, uh, that's important. Bernard so, Jonathan, Jonathan, who I think, I think we worked out has bought, mm. has now bought a house, um, is now worried about his mortgage going up by the looks of it. Do you want to oh, answer yes. that question so, from Jonathan? Just a quick uh, throw forward to next week. The big event is at two o'clock on Wednesday when the Reserve Bank will come out with its latest monetary policy statement. This is its once every three month uh, set piece where it redoes its forecasts. It's widely expected to put up the official cash rate by 0.25% to the um, shockingly high 0.5% level and then start a series of rate hikes up to, most people think, one and a half to 2% towards the end of next year. That would push up uh, most short-term fixed mortgage rates from around about 2.5% now to maybe 4 4.5% by the end of next year. The question is whether that's the beginning of a longer-term rate hiking cycle that takes us back up to where most people think neutral is, which is around about 4 or 5%. I don't think so. I actually think this is uh, a premature series of rate cut rate hikes and that it will be have to be reversed next year, that we don't have an inflation problem yet. The rest of the world's central banks are not ready to pull the trigger, even though their inflation rates are higher. So this week we saw America's um, core inflation rate at 4.3%. Now that would scare the blinkers mm. out of anyone in New Zealand, our current um, wage inflation is 2.1%. It's not out of control. Uh, and listening to what the economists, the bank economists have been saying, it's almost hysteric, some of the comments you're hearing yeah. from the banks, and they're pointing to the housing market in particular, which is, you know, all fine and good, that it's the housing market is out of control, and the way to do it is to put up interest rates. That's one way to do it. Um, but remember, you're supposed to use monetary policy to target inflation, not asset prices. Um, although, obviously, one of the reasons we have high asset prices is because central banks yeah. ran out of room on interest rates and used the wealth effect of the housing market to do their dirty work. And, of course, one, one could also argue, Bernard, that, that perhaps New Zealand needs a little bit of wage inflation because the wages are too low here. Relative exactly. To yeah. My, my view is that the Reserve Bank should leave the official cash rate down here for quite a bit longer Interesting. and use macro prudential restrictions. So restricting the amount of leverage that the mm -hmm. banks can pump into the housing market by increasing the amount of equity that you're supposed to have when you buy a house, uh, reducing the amount of um, debt to income multiples. So effectively you run loose monetary policy, but you restrict the amount of leverage that can be pumped into existing house prices. So you do that. And then at the same time, you can start to tweak some of the um, lending rules in a way, some of it, this has already been done, to encourage all or most of the new lending to go into new house building as opposed to mm -hmm. um, pumping up the value of existing houses. And um, that's where you do your things on 
on on the housing market. And of course, you encourage the government to get out there and build a few houses and build a few pipes and whatever. And, is but before we do our skateboarding dog stories, which oh, I've yes. got two brilliant ones today. But you you um you also wanted to talk about what you're calling or what people some people call Fortress New Zealand. Now, mm. I am pretty certain in my own mind that I need to get some groceries in to be ready for lockdown when it comes, because I cannot see us keeping it out in Australia at the moment, yeah. keeping, keeping Delta variant out there. And we're certainly not going to keep Delta variant out there when uh, the great majority of 90 stevedores who looked after that oh, ship the other day were not vaccinated. And I, I thought the... Chris Hipkins did a very good job of explaining some of that. And I'm not sure that the media has done quite as good a job as he did actually in this. The, the misinformation and disinformation that circulates, particularly in um, the kinds of communities from where those where those stevedores are coming. And I just, I don't think we're tackling that effectively yet. Yeah, no, it's shocking the, the low <laughs> levels of vaccination among the ports, port workers in provincial cities. Gisborne, for example, we understand more than 50% of the port workers are not vaccinated. Mm. Now, it's interesting, there is a difference of a point of view here. Um, the Prime Minister and Chris Hipkins really ripped into misinformation on, on mm. Monday, and no doubt that's there. But Ashley Bloomfield, in the Reconnecting to New Zealand session yesterday, where essentially the government and the learned um, academ academics who are backing the strategy decided to double down on elimination. Mm. We're the only people in the world now who are able to do this. Some would say that means that, you know, we're incredibly vulnerable. And of course, we're all racing to get to vaccination. And you could argue we don't have to make a decision until everyone's vaccinated. Yeah. But what this means really, and, and there's no suggestion they want to change it even after we're vaccinated. And that's the really interesting thing. How much do you lock down your society to protect people who have chosen not to be vaccinated? To protect the system, of course. Yeah. And well, that's the thing. And that's because we don't have enough ICU beds. Our public health systems are not catering to those on the margins of our society. Um, uh, and we need to invest in that stuff as well as um, doing a lot better at um, making it easy to access. So one of the things, Ashley Bloomfield reckons, it's not in misinformation, he says, Everyone who's vaccine hesitant and even the real anti-vaxxers, get them in a quiet room with someone they trust yeah. Yeah, he who's has informed. Said, he, he has said that's been effective when you can do it one-to-one. -one. But that's, mm -hmm. I, I just, you know, I, I have a relative who's who's now vaccine hesitant and I find that extraordinary because oh, it's a, an intelligent, thoughtful person and, uh, you know, and, and who has a, an immunocompromised wife um, and he wants oh. more evidence. And I just ah. thought, what, where, you know, where is... So, so let me go to the skateboarding dog story, which is yes. it's not a particularly nice story, but I, there's two that I rather like. Um, a guy called Dick Farrell, uh, who is a US uh, radio shock jock um, and who has attacked Anthony Fauci, the, 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 the US uh, infectious diseases expert, and urged people not to get uh, uh, vaccinated, um, died this week of uh, COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a very, he, he, he apparently was described as the other Rush Limbaugh, who, of course, Rush Limbaugh's also died recently. But um, it, it's just so extraordinary that these people, you know, this is, this is virtually a story a day about somebody who's campaigning, who had campaigned on the anti-vax side or campaigned against people like, um, like Fauci. I mean, this guy Farrell described Fauci as a power-tripping lying freak who conspired with power-trip lib loons 
um, and had urged people not to get vaccinated as recently as June. Now, the other story that I wanted to put in the skateboarding dog category, Bernard, is an absolutely hilarious one in The Guardian today about a British security guard at the uh, British Embassy in Berlin who's been arrested by Russian, by um, uh, by German police for um, spying, allegedly spying for the Russians. Oh, uh, wow. And a, a dead giveaway might have been that through the windows of his house, you can see that he had Russian flags uh, on his wall <laughs> and military memorabilia from East Ukraine. Uh, other other items included a mug bearing the flag of Novo no, Rossiya, a name adopted by the separatist republics oh of Donetsk and Luhansk. And through his window, you could see this. Yeah, clearly ah. visible was a framed insignia of Ukraine's Burkut Special Police Unit, which fought back against protesters during the Maidan protests in 2014. So it's pretty, it's pretty funny. Oh, yeah, he also had uh, the insignia of the Somalia Battalion, which is a Russian-backed separatist military union unit, that fought in this, uh, you know, in this war in uh, eastern eastern Ukraine. So, so you do you is, do wonder what's happened to all of those former Stasi members? That's right. Who are now working for the West German police. What are they up to? Well, that's, there's that, and uh, don't forget also that various former Stasi people are in charge of the um, German side of the Nord Stream gas pipeline oh. from uh, from Russia into into Germany. Um, but anyway, let's let's not go further there. But I, I've just put that story up. It is extraordinarily funny. It's not so much. Uh, not 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 so much Robert Le, Rob, uh, John Le Carre as yep. uh, as Inspector Clouseau really. <laughs> Great fun. Uh, we'll actually keep an eye out for more skateboarding dogs and uh, for the the attendees on the um, webinar today. If you see any skateboarding dogs, please put them into the links below. Uh, Peter, Bale. somebody, but but it's, Julian wanted to just pay tribute. To the to the people in Christchurch who got the adult sized stadium, as he puts it, I wasn't so sure about that. Because I mean, I just the the incompetence of the information that they had to make the original decision yeah. seems to be rather um, rather shallow. And the idea, I, you know, there was a one of the one of the mayors of the surrounding areas in Canterbury was on this week talking about. Um, you know, being being asked to chip into it now, having not been consulted at all until this late stage, I I, I wasn't absolutely convinced that it was a victory. But yeah, I, I'd have to have a closer look to see what went wrong. Um, I would have thought adding five thousand or whatever the number was to the stadium wouldn't increase the cost. That well, much. it wasn't so much adding five thousand as subtracting five thousand was uh, the issue. Yeah, you know, this was yeah. the and and I, you know we've seen this before with. Uh, the, the the classic, of course, was the London Olympic Stadium, which was supposed to be a multi-use uh, stadium uh, yeah. with, with both a track, both a track and a uh, football field. Until it was realised that the track made the football field too far away from the crowd, and so it had yeah. to be totally modified. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a sceptic <clears throat> on on the public funding for stadiums as well, um, and um, but there's something about events that politicians and the public like yeah bread and, and circuses bread and circuses exactly wearing uh, black black jerseys and um doing haka at the start uh it's hard to fight against that yeah i believe hey, there's um, a, i believe there's a rugby game this week isn't there somewhere oh yeah we'll win it'll be fine yeah. <laughs> they're only australians yeah hey um Peter, thank you very much. Lovely you, to Bennett. see you all again. Had a ball. We'd love to see you again next week. And I'm absolutely loving the sound. Thank you Peter's very much. New Excellent. Blue Yeti. It's lovely. Ka kite no. Have a great weekend, everyone.
Kia ora. Thank you, Bernard.